Welcome back to Divided States of Women from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Heatha Herzog. This is our second week. I hope that everyone liked our first episode. I uh, feel really grateful for all of the comments and the retweets. We got so many great messages mm -hmm. and my mom even listened. Oh my God, she figured it out. Yo, it's crazy. Yeah, my mom downloaded the podcast app. Thank you everyone for your generous support. Please continue to send us feedback and, you know, people we should be interviewing or issues we should be covering um, at divided at voxmedia.com. I am beside myself anticipating today's show because it's about a four-letter word. <laughs> um, it's about guns, but yeah. it's sort of a, a different look at guns. We're going to go into a deep dive. I, I've done a lot of uh, reading on how gender sort of affects gun ownership and not just for men but for women so we're gonna have a deep dive with angela stroud but you so i got the opportunity to talk to eliza brooke who went to the nra's first conceal and carry fashion show in milwaukee wisconsin oh my god and so and you know listen we have this idea that fashion shows are all about Oscar de la Renta or Ralph Lauren, American fashion shows. This is a different perspective on that. So I can't wait for you to hear what she has to say. We are here with Eliza Brooke. She is a reporter for Racked, which is a shopping site dedicated to making you a better shopper, right? You yeah. would say that, Eliza? Yeah, I'd say smarter and better, um, generally more knowledgeable. Generally more knowledgeable, yes. And Eliza has gone to the first ever NRA, National Rifle Association's Conceal and Carry Fashion Show in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, describe the scene for us. It was very different from any fashion show I've been to before. So it was held in Milwaukee at the Wisconsin Center, which is kind of this big corporate-looking event center, convention center. Leanne is modeling the Belladonna by Chameleon Bags, a beautiful, functional, everyday bag with many organizing pockets. The concealed carry pocket is padded to reduce gun visibility and enclosed with a three-sided, heavy-duty zipper for top, left, or right-hand access. Made of vegan leather and sold with a reinforced cut so there's this big elevated catwalk, kind of blue and purple lights and seats set up kind of in a 180 degree array around it. So it wasn't, it didn't look like the, like when you think of Paris Fashion Week or, you know, even here in New York, it wasn't, it, the, the setup wasn't as polished or was it? You know, it was, it was quite polished. Yeah. Um, I would say, I mean, the crowd was very different. Did you ever think you'd be sitting at a fashion show with a beer in your hand? Well, I never thought I'd be sitting at a fashion show, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> and um, normally, guns and alcohol don't, don't go together. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's um, fashion and yeah, yeah. Guns, fashion, and alcohol. The crowd was largely NRA members. They kind of took a show of hands at the beginning, um, asking who is a member of the NRA. Um, most of them were. Uh, and it was lar largely you know, middle-aged folks, um, W largely white um, and, you know, not not people who you would think would be going to a fashion show typically. I was sitting next to, um, in the front row, uh, this older man who was an army veteran who kind of had this grizzled gray beard, um, who was wearing a baseball hat, and he was paying attention so much throughout it, and he kept leaning over and saying, that gun's printing, which means that you can see the imprint of the gun through the person's clothing. Got it. 
Um, the biggest difference, I would say, between this fashion show and other ones that I've been to was just the length of it. It ran for about 30 minutes, which right. is really <laughs> long, which is very different. Most <laughs> most fashion shows are over in like five. Um, and this one had two MCs narrating kind of what each look was um, and kind of what the designer's story was. So, OK, so we have the scene here and it went on for a while. Um did you have a chance to talk to any of the models that were walking in the show? I did. And a lot of them were the designers themselves. Um, a lot of people have very small uh, concealed carry accessories brands. Um, and so they just were walking for themselves in their show. Did you also ask them about their perspective on the Second Amendment? A lot of people who I talked to were, you know, kind of the second I asked, why, why do you own a gun or why do you carry a gun? You know, a lot of them immediately turn to the fact that they support the Second Amendment and think that everyone should have a right to. I mean, pretty much everybody I talked to brought up personal safety is like the second reason. Maybe mm -hmm. after supporting the Second Amendment, um, being able to prote protect themselves and their families was kind of people's number one reason for wanting to carry a gun. Um, but that was particularly thrown into high relief when talking to the women. Um, two women who both work for concealed carry uh, handbag companies at this point, one owns it, one is an employee of one, um, they'd both been stalked. Uh, and they both said that they hadn't considered owning a gun previous previously to that. Um, but after uh, being stalked for a number of years in both of their cases, they decided to get one. And then they got even more involved in the community. One woman who I talked to, um, she has started to carry a gun with her because she's read a lot of, about a lot of incidents of road rage in the city where she lives. And she yes. is nervous about that. Another woman who lives in Miami says that she's very concerned about immigrants coming to the country and bringing, um, mm. you know, dangerous <laughs> habits with them. Um which, you know, that's that's her perspective. That's her perspective, yeah. Right. Um, you know, so the kind of the the range of reasons were there were a number of of reasons that people gave for feeling unsafe. Mm -hmm. But um and you know, I talked to one woman who um her name is Amanda Suffolk, and she's actually been organizing um concealed carry fashion shows since 2014. Um, she's the director of a nonprofit called Realize Firearms Awareness Coalition. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, she was saying that she's noticed a lot of women wanting to get guns because, like, the news is so terrible these days. Like, mm -hmm. and they're really scared. Um, and, you know, I think I think fear is a huge factor here. I mean, after the election, um, gun sales dropped significantly because people were less worried about their guns getting taken away um, since, you know, Trump's taken money from the NRA. He's been a, a vocal supporter of it. Um, so... You know, there is the Second Amendment right aspect of this, but there's also just kind of the, the everyday human emotion side of it. Mm -hmm. it. For so long, if you wanted to get a really great pair of khakis, you just had to buy the boys' khakis. And now, but Outer Republic and J. Crew and, you know, Helmut Lang are now making really awesome khakis that, like, look stylish on women. Could you would you say that this is kind of following the same pattern as that? I think this is definitely a case of this being a very male dominated industry, that being, you know, both the gun industry generally, but also the concealed carry accessories market. Um Certainly was very male-dominated for a very long time, um, and a lot of gun stores are also male-owned, and, um, you know, the products are very much targeted toward men. Um, so I think what we are seeing is a big opening up in the range of products for women. Um, 
you know, according to their personal style. And that goes up to like very expensive handbags. There were two um, designers there that make handbags that cost up to $40,000 that are made with expensive exotic leathers. What? Yeah, because those are, I mean, their justification for that is like, yeah. look, like there is an overlap between people who own Birkin bags and who own car- and who uh, own handguns. That I don't doubt at all. So Eliza, what does this do for the NRA? It's this question of like, what do you accomplish by holding a fashion show? Um, and, you know, I talked to an NRA spokesperson um, while I was there and, you know, he said that He's, he hopes that this will have kind of a normalizing influence on it. There's no reason why something like a fashion show isn't a perfectly acceptable venue to showcase the products from the vendors that come in. This is a really fun and interesting and innovative and entertaining way to do that for clearly a group of people who genuinely seem like they want to see it. You know, one thing to note is that, like, this fashion show is both for men and women. Fashion is so often feminized, um, and they clearly made a great effort to make this a very gender-neutral thing and a very interactive way of getting people looking at concealed carry accessories. I mean, like, it's it's funny because in fashion, there's this huge conversation about, like, what is the purpose of fashion shows right Right. now? Everybody's like, should we be selling clothing right off the runway? Um, This quote-unquote see-now, buy-now sales model – even though fashion shows are still very much for editors, this was a fashion show where everybody in the audience was a consumer. Mm-hmm. Like, this is everything that the fashion world has been trying to accomplish. Um, so the NRA is, like, speaking straight to consumers, and brands are able to speak straight to consumers through something like this. You know, in general, fashion is this funny thing that is a very exclusive world on the one hand, but also something that everybody can relate to. You know, everybody wants to pick apart the Oscars red carpet because everybody wears clothes, so everyone has opinions on them. Um, So it can be a pretty potent tool um, for talking about whatever you want to. Fascinating conversation. Uh, Eliza, thank you so much for being here. I could talk to you all day long about this. I loved your article. Thank you. Thanks. So Casper is one of our sponsors, and I have to say, like, I love, I have a Casper. I've had it oh, you for do. a long time. Yeah, it's super comfortable. It's super nice. I, I, I sleep so well uh, on my Casper mattress. I highly recommend it. There's free shipping, returns. So to get $50 off any mattress that you buy at Casper, you can visit the link casper.com slash divided. Use our promo code. It's divided at checkout. And uh, terms and conditions apply. So you know what I really miss? Um, jingles. They don't make jingles like anymore. Why? Jingles? Why not? Let's do a jingle. Let's just try it. Three, two, one. one. I love to sleep. But sometimes it's hard to fall asleep. But when I lay my head down on my Casper mattress, I feel sleepy and good. Sleepy too. Good. The terms and conditions may apply, like in dating, but I love you. (laughs) 
I am so excited to be joined by Angela Stroud, who is Assistant Professor of Sociology and Social Justice at Northland College. And she's also the author of a wide range of research on the relationship between gun ownership and gender. She's also the author of Good Guys with Guns, The Appeal and Consequences of Concealed and Carry. She's joining us from Superior, Wisconsin. So let's start off with really startling stats, uh, in my opinion. So the United States is currently experiencing epidemic levels of gun violence, claiming over 30,000 lives annually. And yet the increase in mass shootings is not making people abandon their guns. It's actually making them buy more of them. So you write in your book that gun ownership is on the rise. Uh, There are currently 11 million Americans who hold concealed handgun licenses. That is an increase from 4.5 million 10 years ago. That's basically more than double. Um, So what's your theory about why the amount of people carrying or owning guns has almost doubled over the last 10 years? Well, first of all, that's a really important distinction between those two data points. So data on gun ownership has had some sort of complexity and lack of consistency in it. But um, what we believe, looking at various surveys, is that gun ownership in general is actually on the decline in the United States. Um, so gun ownership in general is on the decline, but concealed carry, as you say, has it's just taken off. I mean, it's it's expanded exponentially throughout the country. And part of that is about legal expansions. So, you know, concealed carry um, was has been legal in some states from the beginning. There's never been any restrictions on it. States like Alaska and Vermont and New Hampshire. But most states in the country have had restrictions. Some of them have been pretty stringent restrictions. But starting in the mid-1990s, uh, those restrictions started to fall away. And states all over the country were moving toward expanding access to concealed carry. So on the one hand, it's about legal expansion of concealed carry. And on the other hand, it's about sort of a cultural shift in seeing concealed carry as the response to a dangerous world. Right. And we saw that even in the way that, for example, Donald Trump reacted to, was it the the Orlando shooting? Yeah, he said, how would the situation have been different if some of the people in that club had been firing back at that guy? And, you know, that's just one example of what's becoming kind of a common response among a certain slice of, of the gun discourse <laughs> uh, crowd. And, you know... If you look back at the Pulse shooting, there actually was a person who was there, just one. So someone might say, oh, well, there should have been more and they would have had a better chance. Um, But there was an armed security guard. He did fire back at the perpetrator. He missed. um, And no one else in the club that we know of was armed. And and, um, so, yeah, he he was not uh, countered by anybody except eventually law enforcement. And that's a pretty standard response. And one of the reasons I wrote the book was to show... That, that has a lot of appeal. I spend a lot of time um, talking in the book about, from the perspective of concealed carry holders, why they want to be armed. And when, if you just imagine being there, like in the Pulse nightclub, you're, you, know, you, you read about how many people were crouched behind bathroom stalls, like with their knees up, holding them, thinking they're going to die. Like, just imagining that, mm. I would like to be armed <laughs> if I was in that situation. You know, I, I want to have a gun. Mm. So, it's, so it's easy to empathize. But thinking about that as the response to gun violence, and if you look at gun lobby rhetoric, that is the only response that's offered. We need more guns to solve this problem. And, and I just suggest 
it's way more complicated than that. Right. And and I want to talk about the gun lobby, but but one of the things I find so interesting about your research is that you um, uh, most research actually focuses on the gun lobby, and you think you know look at the individual or sort of uh, individualistic perspective and examine the individual reasons that men especially are attracted to guns. You say that guns are um, an expression of men's sense of self and how they see their social environment. I would love for you to expand on that. The reason I don't focus on the gun lobby is one, it's been done so many times, but two, yeah. like political rhetoric has to be resonant for people to take it up. Right. You know, so yeah, the gun lobby discourse is important and yes, it has a hand in shaping the culture. I mean, I write about it because because it matters. But what is it about larger cultural discourses that make the gun lobby so appealing to some people? And so that's where I focus on on gender, race, and class. And and so yeah, with masculinity, mm. the the cultural rhetoric we have in the United States about what it means to be a man is built on things that are shifting, and and the ground is shifting, and it it always has been shifting. I mean, it's not like this is new, right. but it's shifting in a particular kind of way now, that um, is threatening. What does it mean to be a man right now in the United States? Like. Historically, we've, we've um, attached masculinity in this culture to protecting and providing. And now, of course, if you think about protecting and providing, it's clearly racialized, right? Like who's been able to protect and provide for their families? Right. But protection has changed in the era of, of terrorism and the era of um, just shifting ideas about community. And, and so in that, in that context... We can see why someone might want to, t- to literally take matters into their own hands. And then, of course, I, th- I think one of the bigger arguments is about how, how things have changed with respect to providing. You know, um, the economy is so unstable. And although a lot of people suggest, oh, and crime goes up when the economy is unstable. Well, it doesn't go up nearly as much as fear of crime. Right. <laughs> fear of crime goes up a lot when the economy is unstable. And um, I think that's about larger anxieties. Hmm. You know, we project our anxieties on things we think we can control. Hmm. And we can't control global capitalism, um, but we, can, we think we can control threats to our families. Um, so in that context, it's super appealing. Right. So in a way, the economic anxiety is somehow linked to the desire to at least protect your individual home or your individual family um, from from danger. Yeah. I mean, it's it's about kind of taking back um, some some control in in a world in which you know many of us are, are have lost control, um, and and so. You know, you, you might, for example, not not um, know the crime rates in your area. And most people don't. I mean, one of the most amazing mm. things about studying the social world, and there are a lot of amazing things about it, is just how not connected our, our perceptions of the world are to the reality. And mm. it's one of the things I love about sociology is we can look at the data and say, like, okay, well, what is the actual crime rate? Right. And it turns out, like, it's quite low. I mean, it's hit near record lows over the last five or so years in most parts of the country. Now, there are definitely pockets where crime is a real problem, mm. um, but there are, there are pockets. They are not, that is not widespread. And, and so 
um, nevertheless, our perceptions of crime are that it is widespread, you know, that we're all about to be attacked at all times. And I, I think that's just a really fascinating thing. You know, why, why is that? Who's benefiting from that? Why do we believe it? Hmm. Um, and, and, and who's perpetrating it, you know, and to what end, I think are really, really important questions for us to consider. Right. And I, I think similarly, during the election, there was some really interesting data coming from the perception that, you know, sort, sort of xenophobic perceptions that immigrants were stealing your jobs or that, you know, right. there were too many people of color taking over your town or whatever those sort of xenophobic perceptions are. And often the places where that was um, sort of reported the most were the places where there was the least amount of uh, people of color or immigrants. Um, and so this sort of racial anxiety was was totally perceived. Um, yeah. And and but you know, the reaction is real, right? So mm-hmm. even if people perceive that crime is higher or perceive that there is, uh, you know, that brown or black people are bad for their economic outcomes, they still act on uh, those perceived realities in, in a real way, right? Um, and, and in the case of your research, by by going out and, you know, getting a gun. Um, and so uh, what one of the things that I think people don't really talk about is the fact that the NRA actually uses really gendered language and also often resorts to female spokespeople. Like their latest Mm -hmm. uh, video featured Dana Lash. I think Mm -hmm. this video went viral. It was calling on people to sort of fight and revolt against uh, protesters. And, um, you know, although they didn't really reference guns or a specific weapon that one should use, uh, we obviously, you know, can put two or two together. So one of their common phrases is uh, that the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. Um, and and strangely enough, um, the right also has sort of played two issues of choice and feminism, um, but only as, as it <laughs> applies to gun ownership, uh, not, not my reproductive rights. Um, but yeah, how is sort of female empowerment or just gender in general used um, in the way that we market guns to Americans? Yeah, that's a super fascinating question. My argument is that it's stoking a particular kind of response when you see a woman who, and, and these are white women, you know, right. the NRA has um, very little diversity, except in a few places. They've famously, Colin Noir is one of their favorite spokespeople. He's a black man. <laughs> right. And and so white women are used in particular ways at particular moments um, to do a couple of things, I think. You know, so in that in that ad, it was about responding to political unrest, which, again, I think is like just so fascinating and troubling, Mm. you know, that this isn't about making America strong again as a United States of America, you know, as a united country. This is about sort of tribalism um, of a particular type. And it's about turning on your own people and, and turning on democracy. I mean, one of the things that's that's amazing is that, like, why do we fetishize the Second Amendment and not love the First Amendment? Right. You know, why is protest um, considered so threatening? And and um, and I think the reason is obviously that's in a larger discursive moment where Black Lives Matter was um, very visible. You know, so what they're saying is, I mean, nobody, none of these people were complaining when the Tea Party was out in droves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what what it's about is black people organizing in the streets, and and so the response here is use a woman, a white woman, both to soften the edges, so it doesn't look like we're 
we're not going to put a big muscular white guy out there mm-hmm. who looks like he might be a part of the alt-right. So it softens the message a little bit. It makes it look a little bit less militaristic, but it also reminds the viewer who they're protecting while they watch her talk about it. You know, and so, and of course, that's like a heterosexist assumption, but mm-hmm. that's part of what's going on here. You know, is um, it, it's a call to arms, literally, for white men to respond to this sort of loss of country. This is about taking your country back. You know, and that's what just troubles me so much because you know, there's arguments to be made about why the Second Amendment is so important, and I and I'm not anti-gun at all. I'm willing to to take up those arguments. Um, but when it's about anti-democratic process, anti-free um, speech responses, then you know I think that that's that's super troubling, and and it worries me about what this sort of sector of society would be willing to do. My dearest listeners, one thing that you don't know is that during the course of recordings, I have a beautiful voice inside my earphones talking to me. Liz, stop spinning in the chair. Oh, my God. Yeah, she yeah, she most of what she tells me is uh, <laughs> stop talking like we need to move on. I'm her producer, Nishat Karwa. Yeah. And she's amazing. You're amazing. You're here. So thank I can, you. I'm here. Uh, and don't I'm have here to, to talk you. about something else amazing. Yeah. I, I love my MeUndies. They're the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. They're made from sustainably sourced natural soft fabric. They are also super breathable. You know what? Whatever you've got going on under there, mm-hmm. it's your little secret that has set the tone that makes you walk into a room differently. And what if people get them and they don't like them? Okay. Uh, so- that worries me because I, I don't know if everyone likes super comfortable, breathable underwear that's three times softer than cotton. If you're a soft underwear hater and you dislike the MeUndies with these cute donuts and pizzas printed all over them, you can send them back for a 100% refund. Speaking of percentages, because that's a great segue, what can people get off if they order with our special code? 20% off. I mean, why would you not be ordering these underwear right now? You'd be supporting Divided States of Women. Yes. You'd be supporting yourself. But then they have boy shorts, bikini, thong. I got the boy shorts because I... You know, I don't understand thongs. I really, uh, this can be a whole other episode. I'm sure there's somebody out there who wants to get 20% off I'm sure. an eight-pack of fine. thongs. I yeah. won't judge. Uh, yeah, totally. I, I'm, I'm pro-choice. You're I'm not, not pro-thong pro- for yourself. Exactly. You're pro- but I, I'm fine with other women other choosing women. thongs. Just go to MeUndies.com slash divided. Divided. That's MeUndies.com slash divided. divided. There is... Um, privilege, right, in concealing and, and carrying, and you talk a lot about this in your book, um, that, that basi- basically privileged men are the ones who mostly get to do it. You write, um, and I'm going to quote you, the most common victims of gun violence are poor black men, many of whom are too young to legally own handguns or have concealed carry permits. So my question is, is the, is the Second Amendment mostly for the privileged? What I would say, like being more specific about that, it's for white men. Um, and it's true. White people get shot by police, too. But if you look at rates, it's not even close. And and so cherry-picking data to try to make an ideological point is um, just lays bare that this isn't about being honest about gun violence. I mean, it, it's about trying to make a point that the NRA wants zero restrictions on guns, and they're not willing to confront in an honest way who's actually harmed by guns. And so if you look at interpersonal violence and you look at police shootings, 
black males are far and away disproportionately impacted and black females are disproportionately impacted also to a lesser extent than black males but still it's it's to a very high degree and much more so than white white, white females I mean, recently there was a, a shooting in the Twin Cities of Minnesota where a white female was shot by police, and that was transparently right. problematic. I mean, she was the one who called the police. She was unarmed. But that happens all the time mm. to black people. You know, black people, black males as young as 12, like Tamir Rice. So it's um, not, it's just not honest. It's not an honest conversation. And for me, that's one of the things that m- drove my research. You know, I did not... I had no intention going going into this book to say like, oh yes, concealed carry is bad and and guns are dangerous and horrible. You know, that's not my interest at all. It was what is the actual picture of of, of the problem and what's going on. And and when you look at it, I mean, over thirty thousand people are killed by guns every year. We've actually now in this country more people are killed by guns every year than cars, hmm. uh, which is just unbelievable. And if you look at interpersonal gun violence. You know, 50% of people killed by guns are young black males. That's interpersonal violence. But there's also an issue with suicides. Right. You know, more than uh, 60%, something like 66%, two-thirds of uh, deaths by guns in this country are suicides, and the vast majority of those are white males. So if you want to be dismissive about the number of black males being killed by guns, A, <laughs> that shows an incredible lack of empathy that is rooted in racism, um, but B, let's be honest also about the number of white males who are killing themselves. We just need to get real about the data and then let that lead the conversation. And instead, this is completely ideological and people are unwilling to, to sort of confront the reality. And, and isn't also the data on suicide really gendered in, in, in the sense that there's a really a huge problem with male suicide, but women are actually more likely to attempt suicide. But because men use more violent means like guns, uh, they end up being more successful. Women do um, attempt suicide at higher rates, that's right, and men use more lethal methods. And and guns, of course, you know, a gun is the most lethal method a person can use. Mm. And so that's another thing that, you know, I think if, if I would like to see gun culture change, um, you know, in part because I'm not anti-gun, um, but I'm not a big fan of gun culture. And one of the things that I think needs to change is much more emphasis on the risk that guns play and much more focus on things like safe storage and much less focus on this sort of divisive rhetoric that you see coming from the NRA. You know, I don't think the biggest threat to us as free Americans is the government in every instance. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes the biggest threat is our own ignorance and fear um, and and a culture that tries to encourage us to be so individualistic that we're not willing to kind of look look at data and look at regulations. Um, so things like safe storage, I think, is one of the things that needs to become more central in gun culture. And it was just amazing. I mean, when I was interviewing people, how many times I would hear people say things like, you know, in my house, I don't lock up my guns because then they're not available for self-defense and I need them to be handy at any time. But I tell my kids, you know, you don't touch those if I'm not around. And and they listen to me. I know they do. And it's like <laughs> sort of this like patriarchal fantasy, you know, mm. like I control the universe in my home. I am the right. master. And I'm like, do you remember being a kid? Um, do yeah. you remember like how you would, you know, especially growing up in the South, you can yes sir someone to their face. And as soon as they walk out the door, you're doing whatever you want. Of course, it's like the definition of being a child. 
And do you think if there were more models available to men and, and fathers um, in this sort of the, the, these changing times where the things that define them as men are, 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 are sort of shifting, do you think that if men had more role models, for example, they would be less likely to sort of go to guns or, 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 or try and uh, sort of compensate for that, for that sense of loss? Well, I think there are lots of models. I mean, there are lots of fathers who, and, and things have shifted, you know, lots of fathers who are much more engaged, for example, with their children than they've ever been. I think we're finally getting to a point where we don't call it babysitting when fathers spend time with their children. Um, there's, I think that there are all kinds of examples of change, but if anybody wants to um, have that change while also continuing to embrace this sort of dominant notion of masculinity over their partners over their children. You know, interestingly, I think defense is the one place where men can maintain a sense of domination over mm. without it being considered a problem. You know, but as I point out in the book, it still is a problem because even if your partner is not abusive, even if your partner is a loving, gentle, kind person who would never harm you, Buying into and perpetuating the notion that women are inherently inferior to men physically, that they're dependent upon them for protection, is the flip side of men having access to women's bodies and, and being physically superior and being able to dominate women when they want. So the argument I make is that like being the gentle defender of women who are in need of men's protection is the good guy version of the same sort of ideology that positions women as less than and subservient to men. And I can just imagine someone will say like, yeah, but women are weaker than men. Yes, on average that is true, but all the rationalizations for violence against women that come with that are not inevitable. For example, the research shows that women who fight back against sexual assault, and this gets on a slippery slope of blaming the victim, which I'm not interested in, mm -hmm. but the research shows that when women do fight back, the in most cases, something like north of 80% of times, they're able to fight off their attackers. Wow. And again, that is not in any way to implicate women who don't fight back because there's lots of reasons women don't. One, the main one being typically you know your attacker. Right, right. So you, you, you know, um, but, but when they do fight back, they're often very successful. So why do we continue to perpetuate a narrative that women are just inherently weaker? There's nothing they can do. They shouldn't fight. You know, I, I just think that that's, that's a problem, um, whether you're using that narrative to explain why you need to defend your, you know, the women in your life or you're using it in some other way. Right. I mean, it's, a, yeah, it's a form of sort of benevolent sexism of, you know, exactly. I must, I must take care of my woman. I must cherish her. I must protect her, which is literally words coming out of the president's mouth. Um, the, right. the person who's leading our country is like the poster boy for that. And that's like most men are good and most men do not perpetrate violence. But when they have that ideology in their head ready to use when mm -hmm. needed, mm -hmm. you can go from being a good guy to a bad guy very quickly. Right. And, you know, women who live in houses where there are guns kept in that in that home are, are more likely to um, to to be victims of domestic violence. Is, is that correct? Absolutely. And. Right. You know, I think one of the things that makes people mad about that statistic when it gets used is they say, like, I am never going to harm my partner. Mm. And I'm like, OK, I understand that. 
but not all people again as i just said not all people you know stay good their whole lives some people flip out Mm -hmm. you know especially if your relationship and your sense of self as a man is defined in any way with control over your partner what happens when you lose control right what happens when she cheats on you or she doesn't want to do what you want that that's the problem it when it's Mm -hmm. and, and i'm not talking about control in all cases right i mean we could have you know, you can play with power and you can play with it in a consensual and informed way. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that it's not the same demographic necessarily if they're not being thoughtful about how power works. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're not talking through what power is and the limits of it and what consent is and the limits of that, too. Right. And and I, you know, I, I do want to talk about what, sort of the role of women in this and, and, and even how the NRA sort of markets to women, um, because it, in a way they do the opposite with women, right? They they sort of say, um, you know, if you get raped or if, or maybe they don't, maybe it plays into the same idea of like danger is coming out for you and like men are going to attack you and you must have this to defend yourself in this like, na- like th- this is the way that the world works and, and you must protect yourself. Or, oh, but, totally. but, but in a way they also, it's, it, it is rooted in this sort of fake sense of empowerment, I guess, of you will have power if you have this weapon. Yeah, it's completely about stranger violence first of all you know it's really hard to sell arming yourself and self for self-defense if you're imagining shooting your partner (laughs) so which is the vast majority of violence sexual or otherwise that women experience is either their intimate partner or a known acquaintance so of course they're not honest about that also right so it's always like you know there's this famous video you can see it on youtube of the early refuse to be a victim campaign that the NRA did um, trying to get women to become gun owners because women have across all racial ethnic groups are the least likely to own guns. Mm. But now we're seeing white women are owning, you know, starting to take up guns more than they have in the past. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it seems to be working. But but anyway, so that 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 rhetoric of like, you know, strangers coming after you, it's it's totally naturalized rather than seeing it as a part of the culture. And, and then they're sold this completely. Like, you can try to fight back um, without a gun, but without a gun, you're probably going to be raped. Right. And, and the other way it gets sold, um, and I talk about this also, is um, it gets sold as you need to protect your children. Right. So, and that's a big part of what I found in my research is a lot of pro-gun people, particularly, you know, in a couple times, in two cases, it was women who taught other women about armed self-defense. They would say, I know that, you know, if it was just you, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't want to carry a gun. But think of the children and, you know, you're going to be like a mama bear protecting her kids. And what, what's amazing is that um, when that's the way it's framed, you know, women protecting themselves gets totally minimized. And um, so the, it, again, it falls into this, this discourse of like, you're inherently vulnerable, you're inherently weak. Mm. And even though you probably wouldn't do this for yourself, do it for your children, Um, which it's like their worth is as mothers, you know? Um, So I I find that problematic, but also as a parent, I see how tempting it is. So in our opening segment, we heard a a little bit about the first NRA concealed carry show in Milwaukee for women. What What are your thoughts about that? Tragically, I didn't even know about this. Oh, really? I don't know how it slipped. (laughs) Um, not only is it totally fascinating, but it, it strikes me as another attempt to try to get women to care 
about guns and concealed carry. Um, if you just look at sort of going back to the mid 90s when the NRA was really pushing, trying to get women more interested in um, carrying guns, it's they're they're basically like just grasping at everything they can do to to get women to see themselves in the light of a gun carrier, and it they can't crack the demographic. I mean. As I said earlier, white women are um, carrying guns now more than they ever have before. But if you if you see that you know the vast majority of gun owners and gun carriers are men, that's a huge hmm. pool of the population who could become NRA members, who could become gun consumers and ammo consumers, and now fashion accessory consumers. And it's hmm. one of the things that I that I point out a lot that. You know, the NRA is kind of, I mean, they're brilliant um, because they, they say we're fighting for your civil rights. But what they what we need to realize is they're also the gun lobby, right. lobbying for gun manufacturers, ammunition manufacturers, and accessory manufacturers. And, and I think when they have these moments of trying to sell us things, that's very transparent. Right. So you've done, obviously, all of this amazing research around cultural attitudes towards guns. Um, and, and during the Obama administration, there were a lot of sort of statewide attempts and talks about gun safety and, 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 and the failures of those laws. Um, but now that Trump is in office, gun sales have gone down and gun owners sort of feel more secure in, 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 in their rights, possibly, uh, because they feel like... Donald Trump is not going to take away their guns. Um, wh- what is the effect of someone like Donald Trump on these laws? Is, is there still space for Democrats to advocate for this? Um, do, do you think that we're still going to see a lot of Democratic sort of energy around the issue of gun uh, safety? I think so. I mean, you know, unfortunately, there's going to be a future mass shooting. Right. Unfortunately, you know, the next thing is going to happen. And when it does, people are going to be grasping for ways to, to stop it. And, you know, the, the Newtown shooting was horrific. And so, of course, there was a huge response. Um, the reality is, you know, a lot of the changes that are happening right now are at the state level because the federal government has not been able really to act at all. Um, and so at the state level, you are seeing, not a surprise, the same way we, we see so many ideological differences across states. You're seeing certain states that are getting a lot done when it comes to um, reasonable changes that would increase safety without taking away people's guns. You know, I, I just, I frankly don't think that's ever going to happen. And I think there's an argument to be made that it shouldn't happen. Um, but reasonable responses. The federal level, though, um, there's not a lot of action. And so there's not a lot of, you know, rhetoric around um, gun confiscation and all that that was, was, happening in the lead up to the election. Um, I went to the, the gun store in my small town in northern Wisconsin, in Ashland, Wisconsin, the day after the election, actually, to get a scope for a hunting <laughs> rifle. And I walked in, and, and the gun store owner, who knows me well, um, he said, so what did you think about the election? And we talked a little bit about it. Okay. And I said, what about you? And he said, well, I'm not as busy as I wish I was. Oh, wow. So <laughs> it kind of sums up, you know, like, I think wow. for the gun lobby, it was, I'm sure they were a little bit disappointed hmm. and they will say that they weren't, but you know, their, their bread and butter is fear of confiscation and, um, right. demonizing Democrats is the number one way to get people motivated. And unfortunately, meanwhile, you know, the death toll keeps going up and we're not actually doing anything. Right. right. And explain sort of why the NRA maybe is now going after, I don't know, protesters or like the state of unrest as sort of the villain if Democrats aren't trying to take away your guns right now. That's an 
excellent point. Absent some figurehead, like, mm-hmm. you know, the evil and scary right. Hillary Clinton, right. um, who do you have to go after? Yeah, each other. And it just mm-hmm. lays bare. They'll go after anybody. I mean, it's about promoting their own agenda. And it's about getting people um, to be afraid enough to send them their annual membership dues and to make sure that they're politically engaged. Well, Angela Stroud, thank you so much. This was really, really a fascinating conversation. And I really look forward to your future research on this. Thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. So what's interesting about those two conversations, I mean, from from my conversation with Angela, I I didn't know that white women were sort of owning more and more guns and there was more of an appeal for for guns, especially amongst white women. And it seems like from the the reporting coming from RACT and your conversation, uh, this might be the first NRA fashion show, but it could mean that this becomes more popular and and there's more of them. Especially as women get more comfortable about carrying a gun and walking around with them. And they don't want to be seen as someone that maybe even has one. So as that gets more sophisticated, I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of this. Well, if there is another NRA fashion show, you will hear it first here. We will will be tracking this for you. Liz, if they ask you to be a model, will you? Will you be one? Oh, my. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh, my God. I I don't even okay I'm serious I don't even know what a it's called a Hollister it's a Hollister I don't yeah. even know where to put it a Hollister, a Hollister. A Hollister. See, it's not, a, not I don't even know the name of it Hollister is the name of a brand you're right so, Hollister yeah, a Hollister if, yes I don't even know I, I I don't know like all I'm imagining is like cowboys with cows like it doesn't even make sense okay I have to go back and look at all the photos from Eliza's article so that I'm 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 prepared if the opportunity arises and I'll be cheering you on from the front row <laughs> and and I will need you backstage because I will be freaking out. I I will need you, (laughs) your support. Uh, Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. Thank you to Eliza Brooke and Angela Stroud for joining us. Thank you. See you next week. Bye. We out. We out. Divided States of Women is executive produced by David Goodman, Heatha Herzog, me, Nishat Karwa, and Liz Plank, who's the creator of the show.